regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. everybody, welcome to the 13th episode of Datacast. Today I'm on the line with uh, Martina Parklis. Uh, Martina is a physicist and works as a data science lead at Mosey, based in Edinburgh, Scotland. She loves looking at data regardless of the topic and area and believes the most enjoyable thing in data science is analyzing your data, finding the one that you need for your question, and producing facts out of it. Throughout her education and job experience, she worked with data in epidemic dynamics, linguistics, and fashions. She also loves producing handcrafted data visualization and keeps studying and improving, whether it's about machine learning uh, or leadership topics. So, Martina, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you, James. And um, hi, everyone. So, uh, I want to start our, in- our interview discussing your educational background. Uh, you have a bachelor degree, a master degree, as well as a PhD, all in uh, the study of physics from the Sapienza Università di Roma. So, uh, have you always been interested in natural science growing up as a kid? I guess I've been interested about a lot of things, and I feel it's true to this day. Um, but yeah, I always had a, a preference probably for for the sciences. Uh, I've actually started by studying math, mathematics, and then I decided that we switched to physics because it seemed a little bit more tied to the world around me. So I absolutely love physics and and I still love it to this day and I follow all of the major developments. But all in all, I also like a lot of other things. So that's why I've, I've ended up doing a PhD in physics where I was actually working on linguistics. And that has eventually led me to being interested in data science because I was dealing with data. I was doing some little machine learning sort of things. So I, I ended up um, um, leaving academia as, um, as a career and just started working for the industry. So yeah, quite a varied amount of different interests. interests. So uh, for your PhD dissertation, you uh, look at the study of complex system related to linguistics where you study how natural language evolves in time. So uh, would you mind discussing uh, that thesis in more detail? Um, so I was, um, I was, again, I was doing a PhD in physics and that was in the, um, in the area of this thing called complex systems, which is, in a nutshell, uh, what it means uh, in utilizing physics tools that have been proven to work in uh, when you study materials or other sorts of like things related to particles and these sort of traditional physics topics, but you apply these tools, this set of frameworks, mathematical frameworks um, and simulations to other fields. In my case, that was linguistics. 
just because I always love language, that's another thing I go like. I like learning different languages and studying how they actually behave. So yeah, my thesis was about uh, analyzing how English verbs change in time in terms of their ending. There's been some verbs uh, that became regular, some verbs that became irregular. So if you if you read old texts, old English texts, you will notice that some verbs may just be conjugated in a different way in their past tense. And I was just, I, I we grabbed um, a huge data set, a huge corpus of American English, which back then, that was uh, a few years back, was the, um, um, the most, the longest resource you have for English. And we're just looking at the, um, the time trends of the past tense in time of uh, all the verbs. So it was a bunch of data analysis, statistics, this sort of, you know, hardcore sort of traditional data science things. It was a bit of machine learning because we had to classify whether something was an adjective or a verb. Because the ed ending of regular verbs can also apply to adjectives. And then we've done the simulations in and we also done some experimentation. We're creating new verbs, completely like uh, non-existing ones, in, and then asking people how they conjugate them in the past. So it was kind of a very fascinating topic to me, and yeah, I'm pretty happy to have done that. So after finishing your PhD, you uh, did a bootcamp called Science to Data Science in London, and you were working on a commercial data science problem. So I'm just kind of curious, how did that bootcamp help you with your uh, job search process? Yeah, that's again one of the things that um, sort of become quite popular days. There's lots of bootcamps available to the point that you can choose, I believe, these days. Back then, this was about uh, five. Uh, at least in Europe, that was the, the main one, and the very first version of that. So you guys helped me mainly because coming from academia and not having absolutely industrial experience whatsoever, you guys helped me to actually understand what people in the industry actually do and how businesses work in a, in a way. It was a five five week sort of thing, so fresh short, but it gave me a hint of what I will find afterwards. So I would say it was quite useful. Um, but yeah, but it's it's um. It's useful to do these things. However, most of what you do, most of what you learn, you will still learn on the job in afterwards. I think. What attracted you about, I guess, to the UK, the greater UK area, uh, when you were looking for jobs? Oh, there's a bunch of different reasons. A few are personal reasons, and in general, the willingness to just go abroad, the desire to just go abroad within Europe, and to just travel a bit and have an experience because I always think it's very useful to spend a few years, at least a few years in another country that opens your, your horizons um, to meet different types of people. So it's always a good thing. But the, about the UK specifically, with Poland in particular, I think in general it's a very interesting place to be because there's lots of tech going on. Um, so I just came, I looked for a job, I found a job that I really, really loved and I stayed. And I really like the country, so <laughs> keep staying. So your first job after uh, your PhD is that you work as a software developer for a company called Twigwar for about six months. Uh, can you share your experience there? Yes. So that was um, my very first foot in the industry. Um, 
I didn't have experience. I wanted to become a data scientist and wanted to work in that, in that field, but I thought I was quite weak in terms of what, what does it mean to write code that is um, productionized and you know utilized for people's reasons. I had absolutely no idea at the time because I wrote lots of code, but it was all academic type of code. Um, I didn't know anything about unit testing or even just the workflow of a typical um, software development team. So I thought it would be very useful to just start with something that wasn't my dream job, but it would give me an understanding and uh, an experience that would turn out to be useful for something I, I wanted to do next. And in fact, I thought, uh, I thought that was the right thing to do. I totally enjoyed my, my time there. Um, and that meant that when I then switched job, I was um, able to understand a little bit more what development team was doing and able to integrate way better uh, than if I didn't do that. We focus a lot on the data science um, from the from the science part of it. But the reality is we don't focus enough on the engineering side of it. There's still a bit of a tension between people that do data science work and people that do engineering work and I don't think we solve this problem very well yet as a society in general. So I'm of the opinion that a data scientist should be as good as possible as an engineer and should actually learn those skills and practice them to be really, really efficient. So uh, you have been working at Mozy since 2015, so um, close to four years now. Uh, for the uh, people who are not familiar with Mozy, can you share a brief background overview about the company? as well as the reasons that made you chose to work there? Mozi is um, it's a startup company uh, work, working in the fashion tech world, also a data company. So what we do is we have, um, are in our business to consumer funnel, we do have a, a series of apps um, where the user, and they are free apps, you can download them on any store, and the user can discover new clothes, can save them and can, can purchase them directly from the app in a very smooth experience. So from the user perspective, it's a discoverability tool as well as a shopping a shopping app, really, for fashion. We have a variety of different brands that suit any sort of um, taste. It's also an app that um, shows you some, um, it provides you with some recommendations. So the more you use it, the more it um, becomes available to you. But on the business to business side, instead, what we do is we then have our, you know, we have all of this data about genuine opinions that people express on clothes. And we do analyze this data and we provide in suggestions for our clients, which are the brands and the retailers we serve. And so that we, we are able to somehow inform their, in their choices with hardcore data that is perfectly validated and they can make better choices about their buying strategies. What were some of the uh, interesting projects that you've been working on um, during your first few years working as a data scientist at Mozi? Yeah, well, the first few years I joined in um, and I started working probably at the start it was mainly around the recommendation uh, type of area, which is, as you can imagine, it's, it's a huge area and it's fashion is a very fertile environment for that because there's 
an enormous variety of clothing that you can choose from as a user. Uh, so it's very interesting to have something that it's really skimming it down to something that you might be more likely to be interested in. So that was one of the things that I started working with, and it's an ongoing project because um, it will. Well, chances are it will always be an ongoing project because the recommendation system can always be improved and made better or even just changed completely into something else. Uh, and there's different varieties of it anyway. Uh, so that's one thing. But then I worked a lot in the first two years maybe on even just understanding what data did we have, what data we did not have, to answer our questions, how to get that missing data, how to build it in formats that would be easily accessible by not only me but also the, the company as a whole uh, so creating the metrics that really answer our questions and making sure that the results are statistically validated so that we are we're talking about facts and um, making the data that we are in, in, post, in, in, yeah, in process as, um, as a company available internally to all of the teams in our company so that you know marketing teams or commercial teams can access this data themselves and inform their own uh, decisions by facts. Uh, so that's probably, I would say, that's probably the two things I worked mostly in the first two years. Yeah. So a lot of analysis. Yeah, a lot of analysis, a lot of statistics, which I really believe is the core of data science. Mm -hmm. That that is probably that is probably the the biggest thing to solve first. Um, so, what are some of the features of fashion that make it a fertile field for data work? Well, uh, fashion is very, very interesting. Um, fashion and fashion retail are very interesting areas for data work because, because of a variety of reasons, really. It's um, fashion is a, it's a field that is influenced a lot by things like psychology, uh, the weather, the location where you are in the world. Um, even anthropological effects, like some people may prefer certain things. There's cultural effects, you know, certain types of people may may prefer certain types of items and, um, and whatnot. So it's it's extremely fascinating to me because you can see uh, by just looking at the data, you can see patterns and trends in time and how things change in time. You can also see how decisions that are made maybe by a retailer may not be the the right ones, that, that's one of the problems that we're trying to solve. We're really solving a mosey um, with our clients. And it's it's an extremely fascinating fascinating area, and it's very, very difficult as well, in a sense, because there's lots of contributors and ingredients. Mm -hmm. There's the psychology of the single user that might react to the same item, to the same piece of clothing differently, depending on their mood, depending on, I don't know, what the weather looks like outside, or depending on what their friends uh, told him or her, so there's, it, it's really, really interesting because of this because of this reason. It's not a field where you can get bored. Uh, there's several components that you can always find something very, 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 very interesting to do, really. So that's, that's what fascinated me in the first place. There's lots of allegedly unpredictable things. There's lots of things that happen. Seems seems to be happening because someone has decided. Um, you know, maybe there's some a new trend that's stemmed out because there's been a designer choice. Uh, but the reality is, it's a fluid, it's a fluid mechanism. The people inform designer choices by buying or not buying these pieces or not. So it's very hard 
in a way to collate together all of these ingredients. But if you have the right data and if you dig deeper, um, you will discover very interesting things. And it's it's really it's really cool. There's also lots of mechanisms like there's brands that behave in a very fast fashion way, so they produce a variety of items that is incredibly uh, huge in a very small amount of time. And they're very different from those brands that are more um, less dynamic in a way in their behavior. And, you know, the people that they appeal to may be different. So there's components into the demographics, the the type of personas, the type of users. And it's, it's really hard to understand everything and put everything together, but I think that's what makes it um, fascinating, but also interesting because you never get bored. So that's that's what I like. It, it seems like um, working in, in fashion, you kind of have to balance between both, you know, the, the technology as well as the human element of it, right? Like, so how, how do you um, sort of like make that combination Flute, how do you like try to combine the, the human factors on, into it, like say from from a data science perspective? Yes, this is another of the very important points that you touched upon there uh, when it comes to what does it mean to be a data scientist. <clears throat> to me, what I've learned, this is what I've learned, and I definitely didn't do it very well every time. Um, <clears throat> being a data scientist is not only just producing very cool things, very cool algorithms, or answering your questions in a way that you only understand yourself. Um, but the, actually, the most difficult part is to make um, these answers being understood in a more wide, in a wider way, internally in the business, so that people that need to need to take decisions out of them can understand them and are fully equipped with all of the facts. That is the job of data scientists, to make the communication clear and to not speak in jargon that they can only understand uh, and it means nothing to someone else. Um, and I would say this is quite hard. It obviously depends on what sort of topic and the complexity of which you're dealing with, but in general it's quite a hard thing and it's a skill that is uh, quite um, sometimes not very well um expanded, not very well really taught and we, we focus a lot on what does it mean to do data science from the technical and scientific perspective which is great but sometimes we forget that eventually these people will have to work in a business environment where it is the, the core is about answering questions that the business needs to answer and then produce their products from. So I can say that I've done this well all the time, um, and maybe this is still true to these days, um, because I still think that's probably the most difficult skill you've got as a data science, and, and you need to really, really develop it. But it's not something that you do on your own. So if you work in isolation, and you only think of yourself from someone that sits in the corner and just crunching numbers and launching very cool, interesting things <coughs> on your machines, that probably doesn't work. It is all about the collaboration with other teams and trying to understand what they need because these are the people, people that work in the commercial teams or marketing teams or even wide, more widely, you know, everybody that works in the company, including the product teams, developers and such, they are the people that have the domain knowledge that you may lack 
so by just talking to them, by just trying to solve the problem together, uh, but just sometimes having the disagreements that are really healthy, you learn knowledge that you wouldn't have otherwise, and, and that informs how you should then proceed. I can't, it, it wouldn't make sense for me to build a model that maybe answers the questions, but uh, is only applicable to a very narrow type of situation, which is not what maybe the, that specific person, that specific team is, is interested in. My job is to understand what the person is interested in, what they are trying to get to, and translate it into something I can find the data for, I can make sure that the data is readable, and then eventually I can analyze this data, build the machine learning, test that it works fine, and then put it out um, and give it back to the people that asked for this in the first place. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of a cycle, which is really fascinating. So as we were talking about the human element, because it's really, machines are very useful. You can do lots of things these days. You can automate, and you should automate as much as possible when you have the chance to. But um, it is critical to talk to the people that have the domain knowledge. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that's also one of the reasons that attracted me to this field at the first place, which is that sort of combination between both the technical skill as well as the, I say, soft skill, right? Like, and as well as the opportunity to being exposed to a variety of um, stakeholders, you know, like being a data scientist, you, you're going to have a chance to to interface with like, you know, the, the business people, the sales people, the the product management, you know. So so just just kinda of have that opportunity to, to being exposed to people with different uh, experience, different background really really uh, sounds appealing to me. Yeah. Um so since two thousand seventeen you have transitioned to a data science lead role. What do you think were your key accomplishment in this leadership role so far? Well, yeah, that's probably what I was talking about earlier. Uh, yeah, I'm, my title at the minute is lead, so what it means is that I am, my, my, it is my responsibility to orchestrate, let's say, together all of the different needs that come from different teams um, and try to answer this question, this question that we have as a business together. So I will say, and again, this is something that I still need to to, to learn um, a lot about because leadership is, is a very interesting topic very hard um, but I would say most of my role is in and a lot of my time is spent on trying to understand what people are really needing at that time and then going and seeing whether we got the data whether the data that we got answers their questions if it does not it might be for a variety of reasons it is my responsibility to make sure that we gather the data or we format the data in a way that it's usable to be analyzed for that question and then producing the facts, validating them via statistics, and then giving results back to the people. And so it's it's kind of a hard thing, but it's really fun because you get to, you get to work with different mm -hmm. um, with different skill sets that come from different people and you learn a lot too. So you end up learning a little bit of, of different things and wearing different hats, mm -hmm. which is kind of what happens in a startup anyway. So um, I would say this is, this is really fun. This is really fun for me. I see. 
So um, I listened to your interview from the Data Lab podcast back in 2017, in which you mentioned that you are fascinated in the relationship between the technical side and the scientific side of data science. Uh, and in fact, you actually wrote a blog post about this called Data Science Down the Lie, which I will include in the show notes. So how do you see that relationship evolves since then? Yeah, so apart from the what we were talking about before, which was the relationship between the scientific side and uh, how you call soft side, which I have to say I'm not a great fan of the word soft skills. I think some of those skills are really, really hard and probably harder than the than the numerical ones sometimes. But here you were mentioning the, the other relationship between the, um, the scientific side and the technical side, which is, we kind of go back to what I was saying earlier, which is, I don't think we solve this in this field, which is quite young data science thing. Um, I don't think we solve the tension between doing the, um, the prototype, the prototype data science that works on your laptop or on a server that you got somewhere, but it, it, in any case, it's not production ready, and then the production ready part. So depending on where you are, you might work in a situation where you only need to care about building good prototypes and then you hand it over to someone else, the engineers, they make it happen. Or you need to do a bit of both. Um, or you may come from the engineering perspective, which is very interesting to me, actually. And I think it's it's a way that probably works better in, in some cases, at least. You come from the engineering perspective and then you learn the... Um, the theoretical side, sort of. So you blend it the other way around. Which I think it's less common, but it's, it's probably a very good way of, of doing things mm-hmm. um, these days. So in general, I don't think much has changed since a couple of years back. Um, but because mainly I don't think we talk about this topic enough. We focus on the shiny things, shiny data science, everybody wants to do machine learning and AI, Mm -hmm. but the reality is to do things that really, really um, have a a final product, you need to uh, care about the engineering side. And I don't think we give this part enough credit. Because I personally know like a lot of people uh, coming from a computer science background, which I am, and like who want to kind of blend in, into, you know, learning the science aspect of data science. What 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 would you recommend them to learn about? You know, to 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 get that grasp in in the theoretical aspect of the field. Yeah, that's a very interesting question, actually. And I wish uh, we spoke about this more um, in general, general in the field. Um, what could I suggest? Well, you know. Data science is a thing, like it's a combination of different things. I, to be fair, I'm not even a great fan of the wording data science or data science because a lot of the times you're not really a scientist, you're using, using someone else's science, some you know, some frameworks and things that other people have created for you, and you just need to adapt and be very good at adapting those to your specific problem, uh, your business. Um, but from someone that comes from the engineering perspective, they might be very, very good at um, you know all of the workflow of development in general. Um, what I could recommend is maybe having a look at the, the core basic real ingredients of doing data work, which rotate around those fields that are really, really old-fashioned and not very, not considered very cool these days. Mm-hmm. But I think they are really, really the core, which is again old-fashioned statistics. 
a lot of the um, misunderstandings these days around data, a lot of the things that don't work when you do bad data science is because you haven't looked at your data correctly and you have done some inference that is fundamentally flawed. So I think that before doing the machine learning, you should really focus on understanding what data you have, whether you have enough, uh, whether it, it is a good predictor of what you're trying to do or not, and you should run a suite of the somehow old-fashioned statistical tests that uh, are always going to work because they are they've been done in the past centuries back, really, and uh, they that's the way to do things really for the scientific method. Um, so I would say maybe if you don't really have a background in that, if you never really worked um, with data before in that sense, have a look at the have a look at the basics of statistics and try to get yourself um, knowledgeable in that area, um, and then you can go from there and do the machine learning and deep learning and everything else. But it needs to stem from really those tools that are proven to be to be good. Um, and in fact, I think this is the hardest part somehow because statistics may be quite an a counterintuitive um, science sometimes. Sometimes it really goes, it really fights with your intuition. That's why it's, it's an extremely fascinating um, thing. But yeah, I will, I will consider learning basics of statistics, the basics of really linear algebra, and mathematics and calculus. Mm -hmm. So those sort of things that you really typically learn in a maths or physics degree you will learn in the first years. And that's what constitutes most of your uh, early stage work, at least, mm -hmm. is the basics. Yeah, I see. And, and actually, um, you you wrote a book post about this called uh, Don't Make Recipe Out of Them, in which you compare doing data science to cooking. And you in, in that post, you actually talk a lot about, like, um, how do how do you uh, how do us data scientists you, you need to have a good understanding of each of the ingredient, which in in this sense you kind of you know talking about statistical knowledge. Um, so I guess like maybe can you explain that analogy to the audience? Yeah, so that blog was a bit of a provocative um, title one. What I was meaning there is that in and this is a tendency that is going probably more and more these days uh, because. Data science is getting more and more uh, um, framed in, in tools that you can somehow utilize off the shelf, whether it's tools that you can buy or even open source packages that you can use. It's kind of easy to just say, oh, I'm going to solve my problem by just copy pasting 10 lines of code from a blog post or from a GitHub rep or, or whatever, from someone that somehow has done no dark in there that actually this, this may work if the problem is very well understood, but in most cases, I don't think it works. If you don't understand what you're doing, what is each line of code that you're just pasting there and is actually doing at the back? Uh, it means that you're not really understanding your problem, and I struggle to believe that you're going to find good answers out of it. So it was a bit of a provocative title, but the analogy was like when you cook, it's kind of a bit of unfair as well because cooking is a very creative effort and I, I, I'm not a great fan of cooking but I do admire people that are good at cooking. Um, sometimes you read a recipe out of the internet or from cooking books or just from a friend that gives you a snippet of paper with a bit of um, 
with a bit of instructions. And what it, what that is, is it's sort of an algorithm at a very um, nutshell sort of level. You have ingredients and you need to put them together in a certain order in, and do a variety of operations on them to end up with the final product. But what distinguishes a good cook from a mediocre one like I am is the creativity that they put um, into what they're doing and also the ability to merge these ingredients together in a way that ends up being good. I, I, I can do that very well. Um, but that's the same. So when you do data science and you just copy-paste and you, you, you have a recipe out of the internet which is just a bunch of lines of code and you copy them in your editor and then you launch the job and you think that you're done, you've not applied any creativity to your, in, to your algorithm and to your process You've not really looked at the data and asked yourself, what well, can I do regardless of whether there is a tool that does it for me? When you're really starting, you should be doing things um, sort of from scratch, I would argue. Um, and then, because doing things from scratch can't be necessarily the most time-effective thing, you start automating by using tools that do stuff for you, but it's because you know what they're doing and they're just saving you time but you'll be able to do them yourself. So, for example, you wouldn't write um, the algorithm to do a linear regression from scratch. That would be crazy in most of the times because it would take hours. Uh, so you use packages that do this for you. But you need to know what the, what the algorithm is doing, why is it that you need a linear regression rather than something else. Um, so do not treat them as a recipe, as in as a series of things that you got to do and follow and then expect a good results out of it. That's probably why a lot of these things tend to fail. It's because you haven't looked at your data first and you haven't tried to really split the, split what, what you really have in front of you and trying to look at them with a critical eye. That was my that was my point there, I think. Mm -hmm. I think ever since I, I went to uh, grad school, I was able to actually uh, learn a lot of these things like under the hood instead of relying on like you know simple tutorials or, or websites and or blog posts in the internet so yeah i think that that was really helpful uh coming from an academia background and um kind of related to that um in your blog post called scientific publishing you argue that um academia was actually losing its appeal among young and talented individuals who believe in meritocracy but refuse to be judged based on numbers and and uh, old-fashioned rich get richer mechanism. So so do you see this trend continues down the line? For in terms of scientific publishing, yeah, unfortunately, it became a bit of um, a, it is a rich get richer, and it is a bit of um situation where you get judged based on numbers and metrics and these sorts of parameters. They may not be really really motivating to everybody. Uh, so in, in that post specifically, I was arguing, I was just piggybacking an article from The Guardian, really, that you can find in the, in the notes, um, which was arguing that um, scientific publishing has fundamentally changed from what it used to be. You know, what you should do as a researcher is just care about the quality of your work um, and just doing because you really care and you really like it and for no other reasons. What happens in reality is that you have to care about the amount of work that you published, amount of literal number of papers that you published, 
where do you publish them, in which type of journals, how famous these journals are, and these sort of things. And there's a, a, I mean, there's a few uh, situations where you end up being sort of a bit of a slave to the system. Uh, you feel like you you need to publish in order to survive. The famous publisher perish. Mm-hmm. It's kind of wrong. Um, I think it's wrong. So a few things have changed. There's huge efforts done by academia these days to fight back this this situation. There's a bunch of um, initiatives to just make science more even more democratic, so to say, because the, the other side of that is that you as a user, as a, just a citizen, in most of the cases you can't access scientific publishing unless you pay, and it's quite uh, it's quite expensive in most cases, so unless you have an affiliation, but that what happens that the only people that can read scientific publishing is the people that publish, publish themselves, so researchers. It's kind of unfair to the taxpayer, I would argue. Um, so there's lots, lots of elements, and I think it's, it's wrong. It's going to be too far. It is definitely one of the reasons why um, a lot of people leave academics. They don't like this type of system. And uh, there is effort, again, to make it better, but I don't think anything has really, really changed it fundamentally yet. But maybe we'll get there next years or maybe decade or something i hope so yeah that's very interesting yeah i recently uh, read a book called bad science by ben godaker um and in which he, he kind of like talked about this specific area as well in which he he mentioned some of the <laughs> evil things just you know scientists have done you know to get the published um results onto in the publication and it's very fascinating to to see you know all the different um I guess like strategy that they use in order to 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 get the results, and I I, I believe that you know um, because the, the the core matrix of like a successful researcher is like the number of publication they they have right, and sometimes in order to just like maximize that amount of, of uh, papers that they can release, they try to do like unethical experiment or you know I guess like unmethodological approach to the to the step which. You know, because the science is, is going to be very dangerous if the results aren't quite match up. So, you know, having that, that sort of um, uh, insight coming from an academia like you was, was really refreshing. So, besides your job, you also have organized the Pi Data Edinburgh Meetup since 2018. Uh, what impact did it have on the Scotland data science community? There is an international network that started off in the USA, I think. Um, so we just thought about a year ago, uh, me and, a, and three other people just thought uh, if we were ready to sort of open up a chapter in Edinburgh, and we did, and it's been a great success so far because our meetups that happen monthly uh, always see quite a good amount of participation. I was recently measuring the retention rate, like how many people come back uh, regularly, and there's like, I don't remember the number, but it was kind of very satisfying to see that there's um, a fair amount of people that come back, which is a good sign of something that people enjoy, and this is the reason why we've done it. We just wanted um, um, a group, a community where we could share ideas, and everybody could just go on stage and um, talk about something they've done, whether at work or in their free time, or whatever, so long as it's related to either uh, coding and uh, or, or data or the combination so 
I would say the community here in Scotland, in Edinburgh in particular, is quite um, it's quite lively. There's lots of things which have been going on around tech for a long time. Tech, tech is quite it's, it's quite great here to be to to learn and to even even open up businesses and to just you know breathe tech in general. It is really good, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm around. But um, about their science, it was just last. There was no uh, no meetup. Uh, no, sorry, there was a few meetups, but not really specifically on the technical side. So we just thought we'd open up one, and by data seems to be the right candidate because it's got this network, this international network, so it's got sort of well known mm -hmm. as a thing. And um, we opened it up, and I think since then we uh, we have seen people coming regularly, which means uh, people learning things regularly and just exchanging ideas. I personally. Uh, get a lot out of it because I get to speak to people and just even asking for suggestions about um, when I'm stuck on something, some little something. It might be just because I don't know about that something well enough. So someone else who has dealt with a similar problem might just come in and say, hey, have you tried this? Have you read this paper? Have you just looked at this? Um, and that's really, really refreshing. So I would say that has a very good impact on the Scottish community. Uh, and also beyond that, because we are in contact with all of the other Pi Data chapters in the world. Uh, we, you know, we started even inviting people from abroad for to give a talk, which is kind of, uh, kind of very cool. So it's it's cool. It's about doing things that matter for our community and make data science just be better, um, and just really have fun together. In your blog post called Woman Amaze, you advocate for contributing to conversation to raise awareness about women in the scientific field. So how much do you think that um, life science and data science are still weaker on the female component and how is this changing? Yeah, so I think we're still, um, in some regards, we're still quite weak both in data science but also in tech in general and in science. So it's really a STEM thing. I'm not sure there's any variety between fields uh, or not. Um, I don't have the numbers to be honest, but I still think we're probably we're we're quite um, weak, and there's still a bit of um, work to do to make it a completely non-discriminative type of field. Um, however, a lot is changing because there's more and more initiatives that raise awareness about this topic. So I will like to believe that everybody that works in tech these days is aware of the fact that for, for a very long time tech and science have been dominated kind of naturally, which is wrong, but kind of naturally um, by, in, by, by, by males. And that's not because females don't have the skills, that's just because there's been less of them in the first place. Uh, what I would argue too is that all of these initiatives that are really interesting and really good to raise awareness from the top-down perspective. So uh, meetups, you know, there's things like um, groups, meetups groups that are good at um, encouraging women to just participate more into the tech conversation, which is an awesome thing to do. But I would argue that the, because the problem is at the very bottom, <coughs> we should really do more as a society. And I, I understand that it's a very big thing to say. But we should really do more as a society to solve the problem from the bottom-up perspective, so from the early stages of a human's life, so that the person, whoever the person is, whether uh, whoever their gender is, which is also these days, uh, it is you know 
we shouldn't be talking about gender as just a binary thing anymore as well. Whoever the person is, whatever their preferences, um, we all matter in the same way, and we should be given the same um, access to education. Mm-hmm. What has been going on for a very long time, and this is why we see these effects these days, is that women in particular, if we're talking about this, but there's other categories who've been discriminated against in the same way, um, have not been given the same access to education. So because we are, like, um, luckily, not in the 50s anymore, these days we should be really, really pushing more as a society to educate our girls towards science, tech, so that I would like to see in my lifetime that we never speak again about the fact that uh, data science is still dominated by boys as, a, as an effect, as a consequence uh, of the fact that there's less uh, women doing this in the first place. That is my point. How you do this? Well, it's very... Um, it's very hard thing to to know exactly how, but unfortunately, there are scientific studies that have proven uh, that girls, even at a very early age, when you, they're five or six, start to uh, go away from science or tech or you know everything that um, is considered somehow related to medical area of things. That's absolutely not because they don't have the skills, so there's no um, reason why there should be any difference. It is a cultural effect mm-hmm. of centuries of doing this. We should be changing this from the bottom up, from schools, from families, from talking about this more and more. So all of these efforts to do um, to raise awareness are very welcome. We should do more. We should shout more about this topic. But we should also make sure that we talk to our youngsters in a non-discriminative way from uh, the very, very early years of their lives. That the problem is more cultural rather than than in any particular domain. So, you know, I, yeah. I appreciate your, your, your thoughtful feedback on that. Absolutely. It's cultural and it's the, the relic effect of centuries of discrimination. So it's, it's very hard to change this. But I am very happy with the progress that has been done in the last decades or so. That's why I was saying, luckily, we're not in the 50s in that sense anymore. We just need to make um, to make a, a better effort to start from the bottom up, I think. In a particular um, NLP project, you use data from a corpora present in the NLTK library and analyze the growth of types with respect to text size. Um, can you discuss that project in more detail? Yeah, because uh, again, I was, I was, I've always been fascinated by language and linguistics. It's really a fetish that I got there for that field. I just thought it'd be cool to see how, um, uh, whether you can measure this thing called the hip slope, which describes how types, which is the, um, the different words you have, you have in a vocabulary, different words with different meanings, uh, and the tokens, which are the occurrences of the same word in a text. So this is the hips law. And uh, what I've done there is a very simple thing, really. I just used NLTK, which is uh, one of the NLT libraries available in Python, uh, to fetch a bunch of corpora, corpora that it got uh, NLTK has for you for free, so you don't need to make any effort to get data. And you can measure these, um, these relationships, so you can measure how, basically, if you have a a corpus of text, a long text, imagine a series of documents just tied together. Um, 
how repetitive your vocabulary is. Uh, sorry, how repetitive your text is in terms of using the same words over and over again. And I was doing this for a, a bunch of different languages, which are again available in this NLTK um, library. I was doing, I think it was English, that's a brown corpus, which is the first corpus ever been digitized. Uh, then there's a Polish one and a Spanish one. Mm -hmm. And what I was saying, which was kind of interesting, was that the Polish one was growing. The mm. curve was growing much quicker than the other ones. Um, I don't have strong data to just back this up by any strong explanation. Uh, but it might be that Polish has a great lexical diversity, greater than um, the other languages I was comparing to. But it might also be due to the fact that Polish... Um, um, is a decline language, so you will have the same word um, appearing in different uh, forms because it has grammatical cases, unlike English and unlike Spanish. Mm -hmm. So I was arguing maybe we should look at this a little bit further. I was measuring this thing, I was measuring really the exponent of growth um, to just prove the point that you will see visually, but also to prove it with a number. And um, yeah, this was from an LTK, and then I've done the same by just... Uh, basically crawling Wikipedia mm -hmm. for the same language, I think, but also from for other languages. And all in all, I was noticing, as expected, this is kind of obvious, but I was noting that the, the languages that have grammatical cases, like Polish, I think German as well, Latin, weirdly, because there's Wikipedia in Latin, it's kind of not very, not, not very huge as a corpus, as you can imagine, because it's a dead language, but it exists. Um, you will see that they were growing faster with a faster higher exponent, which was uh, interesting. Uh, then I was also stemming and things like that to just prove the point a little bit more, but that's the essence of what I was saying. This research on like language that not using, I mean, Latin-based letter, like I'm curious, oh, like Chinese yeah. or Korean or Japanese, for example. Yeah, that would be interesting. I think mm -hmm. it's, I've not done this yet, but that would be extremely interesting. I was actually I've done a bit of Mandarin, I've learned a bit of Mandarin Chinese back in the days, a few years back, uh, because it's extremely fascinating, because it works in a completely different way than Indo-European languages. Mm -hmm. uh, the way characters are um, are assigned a meaning, so the, seman the, the, the relationship between the semantics and the grapheme is, is very different. Mm -hmm. So I've not done this yet, but good, uh, good idea, yeah. a good idea. So as I find the time, I'll probably have a look. Sounds good. Um, in an, another project, you talk about learning the D um, three data visualization tool, which is you argue that uh, a much better data storytelling tool compared to like Matplotlib or Seaborn or Barker. So, what are some resources that you could recommend for people to learn about D three? Uh, I wish I could master it. I'm still a very much of a rookie. Uh, I've just done a few things, so. Um, just very, very basic. D3 is great because you can do everything. Obviously, it's JavaScript based. It's, it's a JavaScript library, so um, it's, um, it's meant for the web. Mm -hmm. uh, all the other tools that what I usually use the most, a combination of Seaborn, Matplotlib, okay, these sort of things are, are good for scientific plots, for making the points and stuff, but uh, the amount of creativity that you can use in D3 um, is is much much higher so it's really cool but it sort of has d3 i think that's at least my perspective for not being a javascript developer uh, and not being a designer um so i also need to learn a lot about designing good plots mm -hmm. it's definitely it's definitely an extremely fascinating uh topic for me for sure. uh, but d3 as a thing has kind of um a 
steep learning curve, I think, because you need to do everything yourself. There is other libraries built around it that facilitate the, um, the goal of achieving things like basic plots sort of things. But if you really want to do great visualization of the types that you see on um, websites or newspaper that use um, data storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, you need to master it and it takes time and effort. Um, so there's a few resources I was just mentioning um, around, I think, um, that's the ones that I've used myself. So there's a book by Scott Murray. It's a classic called Interactive Visualization for the Web. Mm-hmm. It's an O'Reilly book, uh, and it's generic, but it's it's really it's really useful, and it's full of uh, code examples that are actually on, um, on GitHub, so you can access just those. There's a primer by Gutierrez uh, called Dash in D3, where you will start and you will just learn to do a, a simple bar plot or a scatter plot. So you, you learn um, the basic ingredients of D3. Um, other things like there's a D3.js in action by Mix and D3 tip, tips and tricks um, by Malcolm McLean, uh, if you want to just do if you want to keep going with that. Then there's a bunch of other resources and stuff, but I will start from those. At least I found them particularly useful. Um, in another project, you analyze the data about the tasks used in Stack Overflow to label question. What interesting findings that you found out? Yeah, so Stack Overflow is another interesting data set, actually, because, you know, they are very... They are the community where you go, everybody goes to, to find answers in for the questions and it's been going on for um, for, for a long time so it's it's, be, it's a very rich data set and you can register an, um, an application and just um, use their ABI to fetch the data yourself which is what I was doing um, I was just interested in seeing what's the most uh, frequent tags and to just find an explanation for what they are uh, they also have a tool I think where you can see these things um, in a visualized way I think so uh, most of this stuff you can see yourself without doing any work uh, but I was um, no I was noticing kind of the obvious the most frequent tags are the uh, JavaScript is the most frequent tag then there's Java C star this is um, up to date I think it's from last year I've done this so it might be not super up to date because things change they also recently published their develops, developer survey where you can see trends in time and this sort of thing. So it's, it's kind of it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was asking myself, that was my main question, it's whether there is a rich gets richer mechanism, mainly because when you write a, a question, uh, you get a suggestions for tags that you can attach it with. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, obviously, you don't want people to create tags that just are the same thing, but just spelled differently. Um, or just you know use different words for for the same thing. Um, so they try to make this effort. In doing this, do they enforce a sort of a rich gets richer mechanism, whereby certain tags just keep getting attached to to the questions? Um, I was also measuring the usage counts and the ranks in time, and this thing called the zip zip flow, which is another linguistic thing. Um, if you plot the frequency of usage of a word against their rank, so you uh, order the words in a um, corpus of text by their frequency, and then you plot the, this frequency against this thing called the rank, you will get um, a parallel behavior um, with an exponent that is about um, 
A. So the, the law is x to the minus a, say, and a is but 1, um, which is pretty much what I was seeing for the case of Sakharov law. Uh, so I was just asking myself, why does it behave as a language corpus, which was kind, kind of interesting. I don't think I found a hard conclusion again. I think it will need more digging, but it's um, it was just an interesting thing to just observe. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also asking whether it's there is a, a situation where old gets richer, so an old tax, just because it's been there for forever, uh, it gets more and more... Um, more and more um, questions attached to it. So a newer tag that has been created now, because maybe it's a new language that is becoming more and more popular, but just started being used these days. Uh, does it have less of a possibility to have um, um, questions? Which is, you would say, it's kind of obvious, maybe, but it's it's cool to just measure it against hard data. So I was just um, fetching the users the user counts against the age of tags. Because I don't, I didn't have the age of the tag specifically. I just had the age of the first post attached with the tag. I had to use this proxy, um, but I was sort of noticing this this kind of behavior of old getting getting richer. Um, so yeah, and then there's synonyms because there's tags which have synonyms, which is the thing I was referring before when I was saying they try to make um, a deliberate effort to. Reduce the amounts of synonymity mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, uh, and you will just plot the number of tags uh, by the number of, of synonyms. There's so there's a few tags which have a fair amount of synonyms uh, around them. I'm pretty sure the JavaScript is probably one of those. Um, while there's less tags, obviously, so it's it's kind of a decreasing behavior. Um, yeah. A lot of these things. It's again one of the things I would like to do to go further in. There's lots of things you can do with uh, with Sakharov data. It's really interesting. And but I, I should mention they have data scientists themselves, and they do this uh, visualization and things on their blog. So it's it's one of those blogs that I really follow. It's really interesting yeah. to see how trends in that. As to whether Sakharov is fully representative of the tech community uh, in general, uh, I think it's um. It's, it's an interesting question, but it is definitely a tool that is now very, very solid. So uh, you can definitely believe what they mm-hmm. um, what they show. So it's uh, it's interesting, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Stack Overflow is quite ubiquitous uh, among the, yes. the developers community. And actually, like recently, they, they released a developer survey for yeah. 2019. Actually, I'll include that in, in the show notes so people can take, really take a look. It was really interesting to kind of figure yeah. out, like, you know, you will see you see lots of things one of the things is that languages like python because mainly of the data science community is growing in time it's growing in um, in popularity more and more in time which is kind of an effect of what we were saying you know data science getting more popular a lot of people uh use python and stuff so kind of stack overflow is expanding from being um uh mainly a developer type of community to being a, a blend of developers and data scientists and stuff which is which is interesting mm-hmm. uh, most recently you've been tinkling around with tensorflow's object detection api how was your experience working with it so tensorflow is a reason thing i've been just uh, trying to learn a bit more uh, definitely not an expert in it definitely huge amounts of learning i still need to do um but um, for Object detection in particular, there's this repo called TensorFlow Models where you see 
prefer you can use their code and just um, run it on your target set, target set of images. Uh, so my experience has been pretty good. I've learned a great deal. Um, before then, I was using Keras, so a higher level API for doing deep learning. But then I, for object detection specifically, I've been going around and seeing what I could use. Um, tried a few different things, and I ended up um, choosing TensorFlow for it, which is kind of interesting. It's um, you you to to really master what is it doing, you need to dig into the code and understanding how TensorFlow is built as um as a library, as a tool. It is way more than a library. It's got a bunch of, it's, it's a fully um, ecosystem, a full ecosystem of different tools. So that's why I ended up choosing it because you can use um, all of their ecosystem there. It's very, very well maintained and it's great amount, great amount of contributions that it receives as an open source tool. Um, so I'm still learning it, I would say. My experience is pretty, uh, at the start, probably, in terms of understanding the API and how the tool really, really works. But it's been very, very positive. I've learned a great deal. That's how I learned, actually, object detection. Because you go there, and then you can read, yeah, branched out and started reading the papers, um, reading the history of this type of uh, machine learning problem. And I've learned a lot. And then going back to the code and actually digging into what people have, uh, how people have written that code and trying to adapt it to whatever I was trying to solve at that time. So, uh, yeah, very, very good experience. I will highly recommend um, using TensorFlow for um, images work uh, because it's a great, it's a great library. And what's also great is that it's very, very well de uh, documented, which is not necessarily the case for everything else. So. Uh, um, yeah, still keeping going on it. Mm -hmm, yeah, uh, and I know that recently at the TensorFlow Developer Conference, they released the version two point zero, right? A lot of change yes. on, onto the the you know kind of the the, the, the data structure of the, of the code. So it might be interesting to see how um, how Google, you know, trying to the, the team behind TensorFlow was trying to adapt to 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 um, satisfy the, the developer community and um, yeah I mean it might be an interesting thing for you as well maybe like using that for your work at, at Mosey with regard to like image fashion image processing yeah in fact I mean absolutely and in fact the TensorFlow community because it's so huge and there's lots of people and again it's a full ecosystem they're trying to make it more and more easy for developers or data scientists just to uh, focus less on the specifics of the code. You need to understand the concepts of tensors, the concept of flowing, these sort of things. And when I was saying it's very well documented, it's, it's actually true. You can read a lot about that, less papers and stuff. So everything is accessible, which is cool. Uh, but there's more and more tools developed around that. Not only for images, actually. There's a fair amount. I've never used TensorFlow for NLP. Uh, so far, but I'll definitely give it a go uh, because you can do you can do everything with TensorFlow if you wish to. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, so given the current trends of data science and machine learning in the industry, what is your broad prediction on how the field will evolve in say the next two to three years? Yeah, so that's a very good that's a very good and broad question. I will say. Uh, I think since I started, I've been a data scientist for four years, for about four years now. And I was working in academia before, where the word data science was never used, but uh, pretty much what a lot of people have been doing for ages has been data science, it just wasn't labeled as such. Um, 
these days you are seeing a lot of push towards these um, these fancy things around object detection, image classification, these sort of things. That's because we are at a point that we can now do these things. While uh, even just a few years back, we weren't able to mainly for the lack of data or lack of compute. The problem with those things is that they need they still need a lot of uh, of tagged data. So somehow a human process or some semi blended combination of humans and machines have to create the, the tag data set. It is not it is not a trivial example. This is why uh, in the first place the, the people that create and release this this data set and luckily they released it open source are the big um, big 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 people like Google, Facebook, these sort of people uh, have been doing a lot of work in, in creating data sets and pre trained networks that you can use like I do to adapt to your problem. Um, so I think this trend is gonna keep continuing. I think it's on a it's it's on a it's on a route that it can only get better. There's more and more algorithms coming about to the point that I can't keep up with everything that comes into the literature because I don't have capability to read everything. Um, but I'll still argue that come back to what I was saying and sort of wrap up a bit. Um, I still think that the most important thing about data science is understanding your data, analyzing it, and being creative and critical around it. Because whatever you can do with an algorithm on top of it must come from uh, you knowing that you got the right data for the specific problem that you're solving. And I think we don't speak about this in this thing uh, well enough, as well as we don't speak, as I was saying, about the relationship to engineering. And I would like to think that in the next years we're gonna try tackling this these tensions a little bit more, so that data science can finally stop being just um, a bit of a hype, a bit of a you know uh, a term that excites, creates lots of excitement around, which is cool, uh, but it's only cool up to a certain point. Then you hit the situation where you don't know what you're doing. It's really hard. Um, as companies and even as individuals, uh, it's because you haven't really understood what is it that you need um, and what type of, of skill sets that you really should shoot for. Uh, so I like to think that in next years we're going to talk and solve a little bit more of the, these tensions between data science, data engineering, um, and between old-fashioned types of tools, which I'd argue are the, at the core of this field, and these deep learning types of trends, which are extremely important and extremely fascinating, but we shouldn't really forget that uh, you need to have the data first. Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, it'd be great too to see the field getting more specialized, so people like you know uh, with a specific uh, interest to a certain flavor of data science can focus on that um, instead of having to like you know uh, study like so so many different things that people and that people call data science you know um so um at this part of the chat i want to move on to the final closing segment in which i'm gonna ask you two quick uh, rapid fire question and um, maybe you can just give like quick answers so people can uh, can, can um, take that away um the first question is that um what is one or two books that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset um, well, one or two books. Well, uh, of the most recent, well, let's say, of the classic ones, I think there's this book which is very mathematical, 
Uh, so it's kind of the, on the very theoretical side. It's called the Elements of Statist Statistical Learning. It is um, mm -hmm. uh, it is very famous and it's also accessible for free online. I will think it's very. If you really want to understand how things work from the mathematical point of view, um, I would argue it's a very good book to have on your desk all the time. Um, then if for a better analytical mindset, really there's lots of other books around that, but I'm sure that you just, if you start from there, you can find other resources around that. Uh, I could mention a, a ton probably, but that's probably the main one because it's a classic and it's really good. Um, I would actually like to recommend another book by Cholet. It's called Deep Learning with Python. Um, it's mm -hmm. more on the practical side and it's I'm finding it extremely useful to... Um, to understand how to what does what does it mean to do deep learning? Not it's it is mainly uh, basically he's the founder of um, the creator of Kera. It also gives a very good um, overview of machine learning and deep learning in general. So I would argue it's a very good book. Yeah, I mean I actually been uh, working alongside that book like uh, yeah. last year, and it was really cool to because he had also the GitHub repo of like all the code in that book as well. We can follow along, right? And, yes, um, lots of uh, Jupyter notebooks that mm -hmm. you can just like, use yourself. So maybe a good introduction to sort of like computer vision in general, as well as like NLP and how to use deep learning. So yeah, I'd be sure to include them in the show notes. Mm. And then yeah, and then Element of Statistical Learning is like a classic book. You know, uh, a lot of good tutorials in R, in which author sharing their their how do you like code like. Logistic regression from scratch, for example. So, so certainly an, another beginner-friendly book as well. If I can add a little point to that, beyond just books, uh, Scikit-Learn, which is a, a machine learning library for um, the main one for Python, just like uh, machine learning in general, has great documentation, really great, great resources. Everything, every paper and sort of thing is always referenced. It is how I've learned. I started learning machine learning. And I will highly recommend um, using it. For sure, yep. And then the last question I have for you is that imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Um, right. What would I tweet about? Well, based on what we've been saying, I'll probably tweet. Uh, doing deep learning is very cool. Go for it, but it... Don't forget to use old-fashioned statistics tools to just analyze your data first and learn that you may not have the right data, things like that. Don't forget, don't forget uh, the methods that are really at the basics of the scientific um, way of doing things. Awesome. So I think that's a good uh, point to end our conversation here. So Martina, I uh, appreciate you, know, you sharing your time talking with me today. Uh, I really enjoy learning about your academic experience, your your work at Mosey, um, your thoughts on you know um, the scientific community in general as well as the academic community, um, a variety of different projects. And it seems that you you try to like continuously learn different different aspects of data science every single day. So and that's what I I really uh, admire you about. And yeah, so I'm sure that the audience can learn a lot from this conversation. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you again. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. It's a real for me. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. 
Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now. 